Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Amen. Hey, in case any of you didn't catch that memo right there on the screens, if you have someone in the fourth through sixth grade with you right now, they can head out to the Emerge Room. Gabby's waving in the back right there. They can head out to their own class for their age where they're going to be talking about the same stuff as us, just more on their level. So encourage you, uh, if you have anyone in that age group, to let them go and have fun with their age group and learn together. Uh, I am excited as today is day one in the year of the Bible of us teaching about what we have been reading through in the past week uh, throughout Scripture. If you're new here, if this is your first time, you came on a great day uh, because 2022 for our church is going to be what we call the year of the Bible, where we have a Bible reading plan called Foundations 260, where we are over 260 days, meaning the whole year with weekends off, going to be reading through the Bible to then discuss it throughout the week um, in community groups or with our spouses or with our friends, church family. And then I will preach on the weekend or teach relative to what we read throughout the week. And so we're doing that today. If you do not have a foundations booklet with that reading plan and questions and all that kind of stuff, you can buy one today out at uh, the info desk. I am tremendously encouraged by the fact that we had 150 of them that we sold out of. And we had to buy like 30 more this last week, so we've got some more over there if you want to grab one. If you don't want to buy a book and you'd rather just use the free resources that are available, there are printouts of the reading plan also at the info desk. You can also go to our website, wog.church, where in the top banner you can click and go to the reading plan. And you can also open the Uversion Bible app that's free to download on any device and look up plan Foundations 260 and hit start. We as a church family technically started this plan on Monday, but it's quick and easy to catch up on. And so if that's exciting to you, the idea that our church is going to be reading the Bible and then discussing it on the weekends and throughout the week, I'd encourage you to, to make sure and get those resources to participate. It's going to be a wonderful year. Why are we doing this? Well, because we believe that the Word of God teaches us the truth and that the truth changes us. And that right knowledge leads to right believing, right believing leads to right living. And so if we as a church family can get into the word of God in our own lives, then discuss it with others and then dig deeper in on Sunday, I believe God's going to do some incredibly powerful things in changing our lives and forming us more into his image. So I remember growing up as a child every Saturday morning for a while, a long time, we're talking a couple of years, that every Saturday morning, I would wake up before my parents, which as a parent now, I'm going like, oh, but I would wake up before my parents every Saturday, excited for Saturday morning cartoons. Namely, there was one cartoon amongst the cluster of Saturday morning cartoons that inspired my passion to get up early every day. The one that really drove me to get up was X-Men, a cartoon called X-Men. And if you grew up in the era that I grew up, you, you know what we're talking about there. You're hearing the theme song in your head right now. Yeah, all right. We'll stop there. But um, I loved that cartoon. And if you are unfamiliar with X-Men, it's this idea that there were these people that had superpowers, superheroes, and they were fighting against these villains who also had superpowers. And it was good versus evil. And I loved it. I, I loved it. And I wanted to wake up early every Saturday morning to make sure I didn't miss it. 
And then beyond that, I remember when I was, I want to say around 11 years old in 1995, when I went to my first ever superhero movie. And some people would argue this isn't a superhero movie because the dude didn't actually have superpowers, but it was Batman. Batman forever, namely the Val Kilmer Batman. And of course, before that Batman, I remember watching that, just being amazed at everything in the cinematography, the story, the humor, the action sequences, all that stuff. As an 11-year-old, I just loved it. But I also grew and became aware that before Val Kilmer Batman, there was Michael Keaton Batman. Before Michael Keaton Batman, there was Adam West Batman. Before Adam West Batman, there was another Batman. I can't even remember his name because, wow, that was a long time ago. And then after Val Kilmer Batman, we need to pray for repentance for our nation that there was a George Clooney Batman. And then after George Clooney came the best Batman, in my opinion, which was Christian Bale Batman, then became Ben Affleck Batman, and now apparently Twilight Robert Pattinson's going to be Batman. What is happening? But it's interesting that at the rendition or the, the start over, I guess, of each new Batman movie or series, they every time have to reopen the origins of the Batman story because the creators, the producers of these movies know that if you don't have the origin of little young Bruce Wayne with his parents where his his parents get burglarized in the alley and get shot and die and then he's the little orphan Bruce that grows up hating crime and that's what motivates all these things that happen in his life where he wants to learn jiu-jitsu and wants to use his resources to conquer evil and become this vigilante without the origins. It's just, who's this random angry dude that's wanting to beat up all the villains? I guess I'm thankful for it, but the origin help you understand and interpret what you see him doing in his life in these stories. It's the same thing that's happened with Spider-Man, with Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, and Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, and now Tom Holland's Spider-Man, and the multiverse now, if you've seen that. All this stuff, every single time they started over, they have to retell and reset the stage with the origin of this character so that you can properly understand and interpret the things that they're doing in these stories that you're watching. Genesis for us, as we do the year of the Bible, is the origins of all that we know. It's the origins of mankind. It's the origin of our universe, of our world. And it was given to us that we might from it properly interpret and understand our world, our lives, ourselves, and also especially the things that Scripture gives us in the New Testament. In the New Covenant, when you go to Romans chapter 5 and you read that Jesus is the second Adam, you have no idea what that means if you don't understand the first Adam from the book of Genesis. If you go to Galatians chapter 3 and you read that the promise of Abraham is now available to us as believers today where we are made righteous by faith in Christ, such as faithful Abraham, well, that makes no sense. If you haven't seen Genesis chapter 12, Abraham through chapter 22, Abraham, those things set up what we would read later. The origins are so important. And as someone who loves to spend my time in the New Testament, If we only spend time in the New Testament and never go back to the Old Testament, it's going to be like hopping in to watch Return of the King, the third installment of The Lord of the Rings, and going, wait, who is this weird little Gollum or Smeagol that's talking to himself, that's obsessed with her? Like you have no context to understand. 
And so it's important that we spend time going through these scenarios so that we can understand and properly interpret the whole of Scripture. We need this origin account. Now, as we do get into Scripture, especially in Genesis, it's important that we don't require of Genesis what Genesis never intended. So there's a lot of questions that come up when you're reading Old Testament scripture, especially Genesis, when you're reading the prologue of the story, which is chapters 1 through 11. There's plenty of stuff where when you were in chapter 6 and you're reading like, whoa, wait, Nephilim, sons of God, angels sleeping with women, what is happening? There's a lot of questions that come up. And there's a ton of gaps. There's a lot of gaps. We're talking hundreds of years of gaps in these stories. And what that ought to make us do is step back and go, okay, what was the author's intention in this story? Because there's a ton of stuff they left out. And I want to make sure that I don't get lost in the weeds, that I don't miss the forest for the trees as I'm reading this story, as I'm getting into this narrative. And I'm not trying to make Genesis give me something that it does not want to give me. And that's true for all of Scripture. As we talked about last week, last week Scripture is sufficient. The sufficiency of Scripture in teaching us everything we need to know about God. There is plenty that our little human brains cannot fathom and understand about the infinite God. And that's why we need faith to trust in him all the things that he knows we cannot understand. The same way that I expect my daughters to trust me and and, and trust me with what they can't understand when they ask me where babies come from. My daughters are three and five and they're not ready for the full truth of that. Now, Marley, five, I can say, you know, babies and, and the mommy's tummy and all that kind of stuff. But I'm really careful with how much truth I tell her because there's things she don't need to know yet. And so when we are approaching scripture, when we're reading the Bible, we need to be mindful that we have an infinitely wise father who knows the things we need to know and knows the things that we don't need to know and even things that he's protecting us from in our fallen, finite knowledge and understanding. And so we must be careful with that. As we read Genesis, the modern reader, therefore us today, best receives Genesis when we cooperate with Moses' own purpose in writing the book. It is the front end of the grand narrative of creation, fall, and redemption. It is a narrative that has reached its glorious point in the resurrection of Jesus that would later come. The down payment, it's even more glorious consumption that that we to this day are still looking forward to, the second coming of Jesus. It is the story of a good world made by a good God and man's role in that world, the story of how the stain of sin affects everything, the story of how God intends to reverse those effects, and therefore... The life we live today, it has implications on our life today, our connection to mankind, our place in this world, our responsibility in this world, one's dependence on the grace of God. All these elements are things that are founded on the story that begins in Genesis. Today we're talking about something you'll see on the screen, the meta-narrative of Scripture, Meta narrative of scripture is a term I'd like for you to grow in familiarity with. I remember when I was growing up in church, in Sunday school, one week we'd learn about, you know, brave David who went and got the five smooth stones and he slung them at the, at, out of defiance to that 
that evil, filthy Philistine giant Goliath, that the little David conquered the giant because he trusted in God to come through for him. And you too can trust in God to help you conquer your giants. And also think about Moses, how he bravely stuck that staff out over the Red Sea and plunged it in and watched the waters part. And God is ready to part the sea for you so that you can get to the other side of your miracle and your blessing and what God has for you. This is the way I grew up learning scripture And what I didn't realize as I grew up hearing all these isolated stories is we would hear them and read them and we would interpret them as this own little isolated standalone story here and there that was meant to be some moral lesson where we go, okay, here's the story about David, about Moses, about Abraham, about Isaac, Jacob, whomever. Now, what's the moral of the story that I need to take away, walk away with and learn how to be good or be brave or stand in faith rather than recognizing that the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is one story with a ton of little stories inside the one story that is the meta narrative of scripture or the overarching message and theme of scripture that is essentially summarized in four points. One, creation. Two, the fall, original sin, which is what we read this last week, both creation and fall. And then three, redemption for restoration. That scripture is one story of those four elements. God creates all things. Sin enters the world through Adam and the world and mankind falls in sin. God would later send Jesus Christ to redeem this fallen creation. And ultimately Jesus Christ is coming again to restore all that was broken and redeem all things. This is so important to help us understand a lot of what we have read and will read. And if you just jump in randomly to trying to understand Christianity and reading your Bible without asking yourself, how does this fit into the thread of the primary one story that is scripture? We can get lost in the weeds. We can make false doctrines and false teachings by making this story about what it isn't about, misinterpreting something that happened over here rather than going, what is the place of this and the whole meta narrative and story of Scripture? Everything in Scripture is either setting the stage or the groundwork leading up to Jesus or revealing Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reveal Jesus, or look back past Jesus and explain what Jesus did and accomplished, and or looking forward again today, we look forward to Jesus coming again. All of Scripture points to Jesus. It's either setting the stage leading up to him, it's either revealing him, it's either explaining him, or pointing again with our anxious hope to him coming Again, our eager hope, not anxious hope. It's all one story. There's a song that our girls listen to. We have a playlist that we like to listen to with the girls. There's a song by uh, uh, a worship team called Sovereign Grace that they made this song called uh, All About Jesus. And it's, it's Marley's favorite song on this playlist. And the chorus of this song uh, says, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, one story of your great salvation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Whoa. Uh, shout it loud from every page. There's one hero that'll save the day. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, there's a bridge to this song that they rap. So, no, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not going to do that at all. I will spare you all from that. But I am going to read this bridge because I think it's powerful in making the point we're trying to make today about redemption. Maybe if Gino wants to come drop a beat, I'll wrap it. But (laughs) don't do that wherever you are, Gino. It's all about Jesus. From Eden we read, the serpent will be crushed by the seed of Eve because all glory belongs to the Son, every story pointing to the Holy One. Like when Abraham put Isaac on the altar, he pulled the knife, but God, he never falters. Faithful to his promise, he would provide a substitute ram for the sacrifice. Now, he gave commandments so we could see his holiness and our desperate need. Then there were so many temporary sacrifices, none of them were perfect, no, but Christ is. The prophets spoke and they were not liars. God would send his own son to be Messiah, rescue, redeem, restore, reclaim. Every saint loves his holy name because he died on the cross to take our place, the final substitute and eternal grace. Then he rose from the grave and up to the throne until he comes again to gather his own. I love that my daughters love that song. Planting the seeds in their heart that this is one story. It's not a little story over here that's loosely connected where we can learn how to conquer our giants. There are moral lessons to learn from them, sure. There are things that we can be inspired by from those stories, sure. But we take them out of their place if we do not keep them connected into the thread of the story about Jesus. And if we try and just learn one little lesson here from David... And forget that Jesus was the son of David. What does that mean? It's the meta narrative thread of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read today. I'm going to skip chapter 1. Hopefully, you read it this last week. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. The account of creation. We're going to pick up here in chapter 2, right after God finishes creating the earth. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Asia. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, our geography lesson. 
Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And every man has an opportunity to say, amen. Guys, you missed it. Amen, honey. Amen. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every uh, or th- I'm sorry, I lost my place. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and of every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, even though dog is man's best friend, still not quite completing the man. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man responds in poetry. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Whoa, man. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see the first thing when we step back and when we read chunks of scripture like this, as you do this throughout the week, if you got my email this last week with me giving a a tip on Bible study, we read the whole passage and then we step back and we ask ourselves, what's the main point? There's lots of little points in there, lots of little things that I want to dig into, but we need to go, what's the main point that the author wanted us to take? It's that God creates, that he is the creator of all things. This universe that we know came to be by the all-powerful God saying, let there be and physics and science and everything obeying. And so we see one of the primary intentions of the author here is to communicate and celebrate that God is the creator of all things. Now, not only that, in creation accounts, in creation account of Genesis, we can observe many things about God, which is another thing I would encourage you to do. Step back and read and go, okay, what's the main point that I need to take away from what I just read? And then beyond that, another great question to ask yourself is, what does this passage, this chapter, this literary unit, whatever it might be, what does this teach me about God? And we can actually learn quite a bit about God from the creation account. One, we can learn that he is eternal, In chapter one, when we read the creation account of the way that God created all things and that he created day and night and the calendar and time, that God is eternal, preexistent before time and he created time for this world. Two, we can see that he is all powerful. I don't know about you, but I can't say let there be and make it happen. I can't do it. He can speak and create. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. Three, we see in creation that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that he makes this world, he makes all that there is. He causes it to function the way that it is to function. In fact, Hebrews tells us today that Jesus is still at this very moment upholding all things by the word of his power. He is in control. Four, we can see from this account that he has a meticulous order and plan. God didn't just create it and go, oh, let's see what happens. 
He had a meticulous purpose and design in the things that he created, the systems that he set up, and all that he created. He was very meticulous. Five, we can see he is good. If we went back to chapter one and we read and learned about him saying, let there be light and everything he created in the seven days of creation, every single time after he made it, you know what he said? Those three words, say them loud. It is good. God is good and only creates good. The world that he created, he made it good and perfect and righteous without sin, without sickness, not broken. But this prologue in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 leads us pretty quickly from the world that that God created to the world as we know it today, which is very broken and very evil and full of sickness and sin and poverty and evil things. And we continue now in Genesis chapter 3 for the turning point here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? This is the root of false belief, of deceit, error, lies that are still happening today, leading people astray. The root of the question, did God really say? She's trying to get get her to question God's word, and that's still happening today. Last week, our social media team took a little clip from my sermon last week, spliced it together and threw it online on Facebook and and Instagram. And in that, uh, when they posted it on Instagram, it got, it, it spread really far. And there was people all around the world who were looking at that clip. And one lady commented on it and said, if you think that God is infinite, then why do you call God he? And, well, I replied, I said, well, because Scripture calls God he. Jesus came as a he. It's not because I'm some chauvinistic, uh, machismo. I, I, I am comfortable using terminology about God that Scripture uses about God. And I, and I told her that, and then she answered with saying, well, yeah, Scripture was written by men, so, of course, it's bent towards men. And then I went in responding to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all scripture is inspired, and I kind of did a little talk about the inspiration of scripture, the authority of scripture. But ultimately, people who are in deception like this lady was and is, and I prayed for her after I finished my comment conversation with her, but ultimately people today who are still believing lies about God or false teaching are not believing it's based on the root of the same question that the serpent presented in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? That woman I was engaging with online, she was challenging, did God, is this really scripture or did men skew it? And I personally believe that God wanted things for us that thousands of years later we could know confidently this is the word of God where we don't have to sit here and wrestle and go, can I believe this? Can I trust this? No. And I would love to dive into a full sermon and series on the inspiration of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, the authority of scripture, and the sufficiency of scripture. And maybe we will someday, but we don't got time for that today. What we do need to be mindful of is the same undermining is still happening today. Is that really the word of God? Is scripture really authoritative? Can we really trust it? It started back then. It's still happening today. 
He said to the woman, did, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And here he comes again, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Guys, one more time, same thing happening today. First, he questioned the authority of God's word, and then he questioned God's character and nature. God's holding something out on you. God doesn't want you to know what he knows. He wants you to be dependent on him, which is true. We do need to depend on the Lord. But the serpent, Satan, in the form of a serpent, is deceiving the woman by saying, God is not good like you think he is. He's holding out on you. And today, character attacks are being lobbied against God, calling him evil, calling him wicked. Same stuff that's been happening for thousands of years that was initiated here in the garden. He doesn't, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God creates everything good. There was nothing wrong. But then by believing in the lie and deception, they sinned and disobeyed God. And what we learn next is that sin corrupts. God creates and sin corrupts. Hold your place in in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to flip back and forth, do a little back and forth here. And I want you to turn in your Bible to John, uh, 1 John chapter 2. It's towards the end of the book. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read something that the Apostle John wrote to the early church. 1 John chapter 2 Verse 15, the Apostle John says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, watch this, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, those three things, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John tells us that we should not love this world or the things of the world, that the things of this world that are not of God are are essentially the desires of the flesh, number one, the desires of the eyes, number two, and the pride of life, number three. Now watch this. Let's do a little back and forth flipping. Back to Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, flip back over to 1 John 2. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. She saw that it was desirable for food. Back to Genesis chapter 3. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Flip back to 1 John 2. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Flip back to Genesis chapter 3. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Back to 1 John 2. And of the pride of life. The same exact things that 
that Eve was seduced by still to this day are the things that the Apostle John is warning the church about. Saying if you're going to fall away and if you're going to believe the lie, it's because you will be seduced by the lust of the flesh. Our bodies that are telling us we need and want things that are ungodly. The desire of the eyes, her looking at the fruit, something she didn't have that she knew was forbidden and longing for it. The pride of life, the looking at it and going, this is desirable to make me wise, believing the serpent that I could become like God, knowing good and evil. I wouldn't need him. I would be like him. The same things that happened in the beginning are still happening today, which is why we must be on guard to the lies, to the deception, to the temptation that's coming at us all the time. That we could respond like Jesus, that I say this so often when temptation comes, like Jesus, we could say, nope, it is written. Nope, it is written. No, 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 it is written. This is why David said in Psalms, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is why we need scripture. This is why we need the word of God so we can know the truth that when the lies come, we could say, nope, it is written. That when temptation comes and we want to do things that we know are contrary to the will and ways of God, we can say, nope, it is written. This is why the year of the Bible is important for us and hopefully not just the year of the Bible, but the life of the Bible for us. God creates and sin corrupts. We sin by believing lies rather than the truth. Eve knew what God had said, but was deceived and believed the lie. Adam believed the same lie and sin enters the world and death by sin. Flip real quick to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament because we're talking about the meta narrative here and we want to see the way the Old Testament connects to the New Testament. Romans chapter 5, we just read about the way that sin entered the world. Romans chapter 5, we'll read verses 12 through 14. It says this Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, Moses' law. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses when the law was given. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul tells the church in Rome that Adam in the New Testament Experiencing this test in the garden was a type of the second Adam who would come being Jesus Christ, who we also saw had a test in the garden right before going to the cross. When he says, man, Father, if there's any way I could not do this, he says, if, if, if there's any way that this cup could, pa- could pass from me, talking about not drinking the cup of God's wrath by dying on the cross for us. He's in torment knowing what he's about to go through on the cross. He says, Jesus, Father, if there's any way I could not do this, can we do it? The second test in the garden. Thankfully, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, passed the test unlike the first Adam who failed. Because the first Adam's failure brought sin to all of us. He welcomed sin into the world. They became dead in sin. And we can see this as we continue on reading in Genesis, as we continue reading the next chapter about their kids, Cain and Abel. 
Where one brother offers a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, the other one offers a sacrifice that isn't pleasing to God. Cain, the one who offered the sacrifice that wasn't pleasing, looks at his brother in jealousy and murders his brother in cold blood. So we see that sin didn't just stick with Adam and Eve, that they passed that sin nature on to their kids. And then if we flip to the next chapter, we see sin pervading the world to the extent that God starts going, okay, this is getting pretty bad. It's getting out of hand. In fact, I feel like we need to hit the reset button. And he designates Noah, a righteous man, and his family to build the ark and be preserved on the ark while he floods the earth and wipes out sin. Even after that, they're worshiping and offering sacrifice to God when they get out of the ark. And God still says after that that still every man's heart was still bent to sin and bent towards evil. Even with that one righteous man, Noah, who was preserved, he still, like everyone else who ever was and ever is to us today, dead in sin, bent towards sin, hungry for evil things, desiring it as is our nature, except for one man, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, not of Adam, but of his holy father, which is why he could live without sin which is why he could be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. We see how sin corrupts. Sin corrupts our minds. We think ungodly thoughts. We think we can have judgments that are better than God's. We see this all throughout the world today where people are saying, yeah, the Bible might say that, but I feel like this is true. My truth. I feel like you can believe what you want to believe, but I think this is right. Sin corrupts our hearts where we long for wickedness. We desire evil things. Sin corrupts our relationships. You're about to read, we're about to read in chapter three and see pretty quickly the way that sin corrupts relationships because God confronts Adam and says, hey, how did you know that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat? And what does Adam do? He throws his wife under the bus. He says, it was that woman you gave me. Guys, not a good play. He throws his wife under the bus. Not only that, but he also challenges God by saying, that woman you gave me. Sin corrupts our relationships. Sin has corrupted our world. Sin permeated all of mankind. And we see it generation after generation after generation. This is the problem, the thread that no matter what inspiring patriarchal story you read in the Old Testament about, about Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon, whomever it might be, no matter how good they do, that thread still is there that they are wicked, fallen sinners, which is why David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery and then murders the girl's husband. David, the man after God's own heart, still had the cancer of sin in his heart. But even at a moment of profound shame, a time of feeling forlorn and hopeless, can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt in that moment that they realized what they had done? They're hiding from God in that moment of shame and hopelessness and the consequences of their disobedience. God makes a promise. Let's read Genesis chapter three, picking up in verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I'm naked. 
and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God knew the answer to these questions. He was asking for Adam's sake. And the man said, the woman who you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she did it. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman blamed shifts as well. She said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and of the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here we go in the midst of, of, of utter despair comes what is in theological education realms known as the proto-evangelium, the first prophecy of the Messiah that would come. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah that would come, the seed of the woman. Why is Genesis chapter 5 then going into Adam begat uh, uh, Abel, Cain and Abel, and Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat so on, and so on, and so on. And why is it that, that Matthew, the, the Christmas story, opens up with the lineage, the descendants that led from here to there? Why? Because after this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, every generation was looking for which person, which man, is going to be the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. And Jesus shows up on the scene, the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. And like this verse says, that the serpent would strike the seed's heel. Jesus dying on the cross would be that striking of the serpent on his heel where Satan thinks, I did it. I killed God. I beat him. But what he didn't realize that was on the cross, Jesus was the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering shame for you and me today. And it all starts in the origin story, pointing us to our need for that Savior, the seed of the woman who would come and redeem us from sin. God creates, sin corrupts, Jesus redeems. God created everything good, perfect, and righteous. Sin corrupted and perverted all of creation. Jesus comes and redeems. Flip back to Romans chapter 5, where we were picking up from where we were reading about the first Adam and the second Adam. Verse 15 says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Talking about the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Praise God. We need Genesis. We need the Old Testament to help us understand where we are today. To help us understand who God is and what he has done. And the implications it has on your life and my life today. That every single one of us were born in sin. Descendants of Adam's perpetuating what is in our evil hearts. Unless we acknowledge our need for that savior, that seed of the woman to conquer sin in our lives where we acknowledge I need that savior. God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I repent and turn away. God, help me by your grace to turn away from sin and fill me with your spirit. Change my heart. Make me a new creation because I recognize I do want bad things. And I need you to change my heart so that I can want you and want goodness and want righteousness and want holiness and want the things of God. We cannot in our sinful nature desire the things of God, which is why Romans chapter three says there's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one does good. So today, I don't know who you are. I I mean, I know many of you at varying degrees. I don't know your heart. I don't know your relationship with God. I don't know who you are watching online today. What I do know is that every single person has the same condition before God. You have the cancer of sin. And if you don't repent of it and place your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, crushing that serpent, conquering Satan and sin and death, then you're still dead in sin which is why you can't help but continuing to do the sinful things that you know you shouldn't do, that you know better. Even though you want to stop, you can't help it. You keep continuing to it. Even after a Sunday when you're like, I'm so so inspired. I'm like, I mean it, God, this time I really, I really am laying that down. I really am turning away. Is it possible that you're placing your hope in your commitment to be good rather than placing your hope in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and going, I'm not good enough. Jesus, you were good enough. I need your goodness in my life to change my heart and, and, and help me turn away from sin because I can't do it on my own. Guys, I rededicated my life a hundred times to God to no avail. Every time it was because I was bringing my dedication and commitment to God rather than recognizing he did it all and I need to just believe it. And when I do that, he changes my heart. He fills me with his spirit. He transforms me into a new creation where even though I used to long for lustful things, he begins to work that out of my heart. If you want and long for uh, alcohol in a way that you want it to satisfy you other than Jesus, he can work that out of your heart. Whatever it is that you continue to long for other than Jesus to fulfill you, and satisfy you and complete you and give you a hope to look forward to. He can work that out of your heart and change you. But we must acknowledge our need for that Savior and repent of that sin and ask Him by His grace to change us and fill us with His Spirit to where we look again to the day where like Christmas they looked forward to that baby coming we today still in our broken, corrupted world. Go, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, come quickly. Come back. We long for the day that that we will be new. 
no more weakness, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil, no more wickedness, but we will all together forever. We sang in one of the songs this morning that we'll be singing forever, praising God to the glory of his grace and we'll love it. We won't want anything else and all the pleasures of this world will look like tiny little petty trinkets little carnival toys compared to the eternal glory of Jesus Christ face to face. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you for your word. God, I ask right now that if there's anyone in this room or watching online that does not know you, that has not been changed and transformed by your spirit, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to see and believe the truth, to see their need for a Savior, to confess their sin and repent and turn from it, and that God, that your same Holy Spirit would fill them and indwell them and change them and grow them and mature them where we all could grow more and more and more into the image of Christ. We don't want to just play church. We don't want to just get our Christian social club checkmark. We want to love you, serve you, follow you, give our lives to you, Lord. And I pray that your word would change us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.